Amen. It is good to be back. And there we go. Good to be back here tonight with you folks. Right, what a privilege it is uh, to be here. It's always uh, always different for the missionary. If he ever finds himself uh, preaching a service and the pastor's not present, it's like the pressure's on. You know what I'm saying? It's, I know he's watching, so I better do a good job tonight. You know. But uh, anyway, I, I'm just I'm just happy to be here. You know, um, church is my favorite place to be, bar none. Um, it's just it's just wonderful that fellow. This is a this is a slice of heaven on earth. Now think about it. When we are in eternity, when we're when we're in heaven, this is who we're going to fellowship with. Uh, this these are, this is the people that you're going to spend eternity with. Is your brothers and sisters that you fellowship here at church. And so I hope you like them as much as I do because you're going to spend eternity with them. Amen. <laughs> Maybe some relationships need to get mended tonight. I don't know, but praise the Lord. Amen. So here's what Pastor uh, asked, or told me I could do. He said, uh, in, in lieu of a missionary in the field that we're going uh, going to, we can open for a Q&A for the first part of the service. And so if anybody has any questions they would like to ask me um, or my children, but ask at your own risk if you really want to know what they think about something, um, they don't mince words. So um, anyway, fire away if you got a question about the mission field that we're going to or um, about me or my family or uh, any question, really. Um, I love questions, and I'd like to answer them. Yes, ma'am. How did you come about going to Italy? How did I come about going to Italy? Like, how did we choose Italy? Okay, um, I'll say we didn't choose Italy. Um, I'd say God did. But uh, as far as how did we recognize that, um, I just think of uh, the Sunday school lesson this morning. I uh, was talking about Paul and uh, the Macedonian call. You know, and it's like he had plenty of plans that he wanted to go into Asia and different things and whatnot, but it took, uh, it took someone from Macedonia in a vision saying, hey, come over here and help us, and that was his Macedonian call. We experienced something similar. Now, we didn't get our call through a vision like Paul did or in a dream. Um, however, our, our church sent a previous missionary uh, to Italy, to the island that we're going to, and uh, for the four years that he's been there, um, he was a friend of mine and just kind of you know, I'd uh, half joking, half not, asked me if I would go with him and help him. Um, and then it was just uh, just one of those things where it was just we were established in our church. It just didn't seem like it was on the table. And one day he got real serious and just asked me, um, "Would you really consider coming out here?" And I said, "You know what? I'm not saying no, um, but I, I just don't know." And I got to thinking about it, and you know what, what did it for me was I couldn't think of a good reason not to. You know, when when, fa when faced with the reality of it, I was like, I did. I tried. I tried long and hard uh, to think of a reason why I shouldn't go, and I couldn't come up with a good answer. So that, and then coupled with pastoral counseling, I ran it by my pastor. I said, Hey, what do you think about this? And uh, he gave me some counsel. And a few years later, uh, we took a trip to Italy. God knit uh, our hearts together, me and that uh, that other missionary brother who's over there, and uh, we're going to be a church planting, soul winning team um, over there when we get to Italy, and that's, uh, that's, that's how God kind of brought that around full term for us. Um, and so it really wasn't my idea. Um, I don't wake up one morning with a burden to be a missionary. You know, God, uh, God kind of guided and directed as I sought his will and as I served in our local church, and uh, when, you, when you set your mind to, there's nothing off the table, um, and you want to, want to serve God, well, he'll, he'll lead you. He'll make sure you're, you're doing his will, if that's your attitude. And so I'm a, I'm a testament to that, for sure. That's, did that answer your question? Okay. Thank you. Excellent question, by the way. Anybody else? Yes, sir. They are a democracy. Uh, most of Europe is. Uh, and uh, it's a weak democracy. Um, at that, so in in Italy, um, it's it's very interesting. So the um, the political factions, if you will, are pretty much those who want to hold to uh, the tradition of the papacy and uh, allow Catholicism to basically continue ruling. And then there's another uh, faction of them that are more progressive, but their ideas politically are not much better than holding to Catholic tradition. They're they're what we would call your your political left. 
Um, and so they're, they're the more radical, they're the more progressive of the two groups, but the other ones who want to hold to tradition um, aren't really much better. Um, so that's kind of where we're at politically um, in Italy as far as I understand it. Um, and so I, I'm not going to be too worried about the political situation in Italy. Um, I won't be able to have any kind of say in that um, anyway. So um, that's, that's, that's for God to deal with. Um, I'm going to faithfully serve him, and we're not going to worry about politics while we're over there. Excellent question. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, right now, I'm in the process of trying to secure dual citizenship um, through Malta. In fact, next month, I'm taking a trip to Malta to try and finalize it. Um, and so you can pray for that. Um, that's, a, that's a huge deal. If I can uh, secure my citizenship to Malta, I say, how does that have any bearing on Italy? Well, they're both part of the European Union. Um, so the way that works is citizens of European Union countries get to operate and function internationally similar to states. All right. And so if you don't think of them as countries, if you think of them as EU states and how uh, a citizen of one of those European Union states can live and operate business and they can own property and they can pretty much do anything that a normal citizen of that country can do except be politically active. So the only restrictions on that that I would experience as a citizen of Malta living in Italy would be that I could not personally hold public office or I could not vote in any elections or anything like that. And so that's the only restriction as far as owning a business or buying property or operating even religiously. Um, they would not have any grounds to deport us at all. Um, and so that's, that's the advantages um, of that. And as soon as I can secure mine, um, I can secure them for my entire family. Uh, so that's, that is a huge, huge advantage. Italy, uh, Italy is not like America when it comes to um, naturalization and citizenship process. They don't really want you there. Um, they're proud of their Italian heritage. It's not a melting pot. If you're not Italian, you don't belong. Um, and so that's, that's, a lot of their, that's, that's a lot of the overwhelming mentality there. So they don't make it easy uh, to get that. In order to naturalize to Italy, you have to be there for at least 10 years. Um, and they make the visa process extremely grueling. Um, it's very demanding and very, very hard. So anybody who naturalizes and becomes a citizen to Italy has earned it. Okay? So that's the advantage of the citizenship. That's why we're going through that whole process, and I'm jumping through all kind of bureaucratic hoops uh, <laughs> to secure that is because it's going to make my life in Italy a whole lot easier. Excellent question. And does that answer your question? Yeah. Anybody else? In a minute. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I know the film this morning was um, said that Catholicism is really big here. Mm -hmm. Also talked about uh, paganism in general. Mm -hmm. what, how does Catholicism cut us there? Um, not much. So the presence of other religions in Italy is less than a percent. Um, so it's it's mostly Catholic and Catholic by tradition. Uh, the reason I say paganistic tradition is because there are, there are some that kind of see through the guise of, um, of Catholicism, but really what, what Catholicism is is just paganism re repackaged. Um, so when we were in Rome, I'll give you a perfect example of this. When we were in Rome, uh, we visited the uh, Roman pantheon. Okay, Now in, in ancient Rome, this was where they had set up their uh, they're pagan gods, right? You had Pluto and Jupiter and Mercury and uh, all, of, all of those guys. They would be set up in the pantheon and they would offer sacrifices, a big hole in the ceiling where the smoke would come up from the, from the blood sacrifice and animal sacrifice and all the different things that they would sacrifice to their heathen gods. Now, when Constantine established the Church of Rome or Catholicism, um, that very quickly changed. So what they did was they ended up tearing down Pluto and Neptune and uh, Mercury and all of them and erected Peter, James, and John in their stead. I've stood in the Roman pantheon, and I've seen the saints, the graven images of the saints, in the place of their pagan gods. So what they did was they adopted a Christian, Christianized label and kept their polytheistic heathen tradition. Uh, instead of offering sacrifices there, now they kneel and do penance and kiss the toes of the idols. Okay, and that is, that is true of any... Um, Catholicized nation 
But what they do is they infiltrate with missionaries and priests, and they adopt the pagan practices and Christianize it. Um, they'll take their gods, they'll take their spirits, they'll take their ancestors, and they'll, they'll kind of just twist it and slap a Christian label on it, and there you have it. And that's why Catholicism differs depending on what country you're in. We had a conversation about this at the pastor's house today, how um, Amer- American Catholics are very, very different from Italian Catholics. Um, they can't say that you can't have a Bible here in America. Our First Amendment protects that. So what they did was they changed the Bible for the American Catholics. They keep to our American ideals or whatnot, and they're allowed to have a Bible, but it's changed, it's twisted to fit their doctrine. In Italy, they don't let you have a Bible. Now, there is a Bible in Italy, but they're not passing them out. They're, they're, they are convinced that you can't understand it, so that's why you need the priest. Funny thing is, the priest doesn't have it either. They don't trust them with it. Uh, I explained the, uh, the, the, the sole amount of spiritual meat they get from the priests every Mass is an email that they get from the uh, Vatican, from the Pope or the Archbishop or whoever sends it out to their, their section of priests or whatnot, detailing exactly what they're going to say and what they're going to teach. And the priests literally just regurgitate this to the people. There's no study. There's no, there's, there's no personalization of any of these lessons. So that's what they're being fed spiritually in Italy. Um, the paganistic traditions, um, there's something in Sardinia. I have not witnessed this, but there were some videos on, or um, some imagery on the video I showed you where people were dressed up with um, ox heads and stuff like that, and they're doing it. In. So there's a tradition up in the mountains of Sardinia um, where they hold this festival, um, and the idea is it's honoring um, a time where men become beasts or whatnot and act and behave like beasts, and it's, it's, it's wicked. It's rotten. It's, it's heathen. Um, but that's, that's something they'll reenact every single, every single year um, and do. And by the way, if you, I, I, don't, I don't know too much. I, I try to be as ignorant I can concerning things which are evil and, and, and biblically sound, all right? That's what, I, that's what I feed my mind. So I don't know too much about it, but I do know this. In, in, uh, um, in Satanistic cultures or whatnot and, uh, and, and people that practice that kind of worship, um, the uh, goat head is always a symbol of that sort of thing. Any, anything Satan's got his influence on, uh, you'll find animalistic behavior um, and, and, and such, such things. Uh, so that, uh, that has Satan's fingerprints all over it. Um, I don't know the origins. I don't know necessarily why, why it happens. I just look at it and I go, that's, that's not biblical. It's not right. Um, there's something wrong with that. And so that's, that's, that is still practiced. It is still observed as a holiday or as a tradition that they hold to and that they, that they like. And it's even a, an attraction for a lot of the visitors um, that come to the island, the tourists or whatnot, they come to see this sort of thing. Um, but the other parades are just as, just as bad. They're, they're not any more Christian because they parade around idols. Um, we witnessed one when we were in Sardinia for our survey trip. I'll tell you this story real quick just because it's so applicable and... Um, and, and, and uh, I don't know how to say it. it's heart wrenching, but we watched a uh, a procession uh, called the Pro- procession of the Maria di Itria, and uh, the Maria di Itria is a statue of Mary, all right, that is set up in one church in one town, and every uh, every year it is transferred 300 kilometers to another town where it's set up in another church for the rest of that year, and then it switches places again. And every year they have this big parade where they transfer the statue between the two towns. Okay? And uh, the name Maria Dietria literally means Mary is the way. That doesn't get much more blasphemous than that. Uh, my Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. So to declare that anybody other than Mary is the way... Um, is, is sacrilegious blasphemy. But I wish it was just that. It's worse. And so we go there, and it's the crown jewel of this procession, and it's a, and really, it, it is a, a beautiful representation of the culture and the history of Sardinia. Um, many of the ladies will wear traditional ceremonial garbs, and the men will dress in the, um, the old ancient shepherd dress and whatnot, and, 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 what, and some of the ways they would do it, they'd wear the sheep's hide and the wool or whatnot to be able to 
uh, disguise themselves from sea raiders and stuff like that. When they fled for the hills, they wouldn't be able to tell the men from the sheep as a way of protection. And so it's, it's, it's all really, really neat and, and very cultural and, and, and beautiful representation of that. But the crown jewel of it all is this idol. Um, and what they'll do is they drag it on ox cart that some 300 kilometers, and all the while there'll be a priest following behind, and he'll be declaring the Hail Marys in Latin and in Italian. And he'll be declaring something. I'll translate for you. Something similar to Mary, our Savior. That's Maria mi salvo. Mary, our Savior. Mary, our intercessor. Mary, our Redeemer. <laughs> all, the, all those titles. And the list goes on and on. There's some dozen or so Hail Marys um, that they, they, they'll, they'll cry out. And every single one of them is blasphemous. Every single one of those titles belongs to Jesus Christ. And so that's the scene. He's, he's going behind the statue and he's, he's crying out these Hail Marys. And the people are answering him at every step of the procession. And then behind him are literal multitudes. Some are tourists that are trying to be a part of something, and others are people who are literally crying after the statue. I mean, they're weeping. Uh, they're, they're, they're crawling after it. They're crying after it. They're asking it for forgiveness of sins, for blessings on their life, for financial freedom. They're asking it for all of their petitions, every, every heartache, every burden that they have. They're crying after this deaf, dumb statue. It has eyes, but it can't see their needs. It has ears, and it cannot hear their cries. It has a mouth, and it cannot answer them. It has hands and feet, but they're powerless to aid in their needs. Well, we witnessed this. We watched this happen. And the whole reason we were there as, as missionaries, was we were going to pass out translated John and Romans or whatnot, but I was, I was so dumbstruck by what I saw. I didn't get any out. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I'm telling you, unless you've seen it, unless you've been there and seen it, it's idolatry on a level that is foreign to us here. We don't. We, our, our, our Catholics don't practice this sort of thing. They don't cry out. They don't cry after the idol, not publicly anyway. And this is what was going on. This is what was being celebrated. The procession of the Maria Dietria for these two towns, it is the biggest event of the year. It's like 4th of July to them. Everybody comes to see it. Everybody comes to pay homage to this cunningly carved statue of Mary. The whole town stops. All the business is closed. The streamers are brought out. In some, in some years, I heard there was even fireworks, which is a huge, extravagant expense for them. They don't pull stuff out like that just willy-nilly. That's the spiritual state. So yeah, Catholicism and pagan worship, and really they're one and the same. There's a great need in Italy. And by the way, this happens in every town in Italy without exception. There's some, there's some like 500 saints and every town in Italy, not just Sardinia, in Italy, okay, millions of people, every town has a saint that governs it and the people pray to it. Sicily is no exception. Mainland Italy, Rome, Syracuse, Venice, they all have their town, their city, has a saint that watches over them. And they pray to it. One in which? Santa Claus. I'm serious. I've changed my mind. He's not some harmless holiday figure. He's an idol that's duping people and sending them to hell. People are offering people are offering prayers to him and asking for forgiveness of sins. I forget which town that is, but when I heard that I couldn't believe it. He's one of the saints. He's one of the Catholic saints. You know the word for it. It's pagan. Does that answer your question? I didn't mean to preach off that one, but that's just a load. It's not, there's no way to shortly answer that question. That's a good one. Anybody else? Yes, sir. We are currently right around 75% 
Um, I think our exact dollar amount is kind of actually between percents, that's why I say approximately, but uh, give or take, we're right around 75%. So we aim to be on the field um, in September of this year. So we shouldn't have a problem hitting that goal. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Um, one was, uh, let's see. Oh, you put me on the spot. <laughs> um, it's one real, real close to. I wish my wife were here. She probably would remember. Um, Villamar, Villamar's one, and the other somewhere outside of Oristano. Um, I cannot remember. I apologize, but one of them is Villamar. Now, um, Villamar is where we saw it. We saw it coming to Villamar. So, yes, sir. Paul was never in Sardinia. No, sir. Um, he was in Malita, which is another word for Malta, so that's kind of cool. But I'm not going to Malta, so. Yes, sir. You had a question, sir? Yes, I could go to any European country that is um, part of the European Union. I could live there. I could own property there. I could operate a business there. Um, I can be active anywhere in the European Union with that citizenship. So it's it's really it is is really a invaluable um, tool. Uh, but once once that's secured, so I'm I'm serious. P please pray. Um, they don't they don't Malta doesn't make it any easier to get citizenship. Um, it's a small country, and they're they're protective of it, um, so they don't offer it to just anybody. I, it's a miracle that I'm even eligible. So each so. country then would have their restrictions on establishment of religious churches or facilities. Yes, um, and other countries may make it more difficult. Um, Germany, for example, is pretty closed, um, as far as for, from what I understood. I spoke to a missionary not too long ago who was in Germany. Um, and they have a really, really, really hard time operating uh, with their visa, let alone let alone citizenship. Even with citizenship, so citizenship basically means they can't deport you. Okay, they have no grounds unless you break a law. So if they want to go to a point where they make preaching the word of God illegal or something, something along those lines, I, there are loopholes where they could persecute you. Um, but you would have to, you would have to basically be tried and convicted. Of breaking a serious law worthy of being uh, excommunicated from your country, which I mean, mo most laws like that will get you imprisoned, not deported. Um, if you're a citizen, you have a right to be there. Now, the EU does work a little differently. They could ban you from the country that you're not a citizen to, you know. So that that is a possibility, um, but it's highly unlikely. And so they would they, they they would have they would have a hard time um, justifying that with uh, with with the with the powers that be that that make those calls. And we're actually believe it or not we're we're uh, as missionaries we're kind of protected by the Pope right now. Uh, it's it's interesting, but he is uh, he's spearheading a very ecumenical uh, movement right now, and a lot of Catholics are actually upset at him for it. Um, but because he's pushing for this let's all come together um, idea which is very very much you know one world religion antichrist kingdom stuff like stuff we're not necessarily for it's provided us an opportunity he can't persecute one religious group without alienating the rest that he's trying to work to bring together and so in lieu of that mindset that the pope is pushing for we do have some limited protection um, which is nice and we're going to utilize that as long as it lasts Yes, ma'am. No, it is not a law, but so the established government is still very much in the pocket of Rome, uh, the Vatican. Okay, so they they have a lot of influence and a lot of pull, and so though there is an Italian Bible, a complete Italian Bible. Um, that has a, this is from the TR, the Texas Receptus, is a good translation of the Bible. Um, all of that, all of that exists in Italy. It's just hard to find. Um, it's scarce. And so one of the things we've had is they're not printing them in Italy. 
it's another country that's done the translation and they, they have the copyright on it. And so since there's not a huge need for them because Italians aren't going after them, um, when a missionary goes and tries to make an order, we've, we've had a hard time getting this printing company who prints these Bibles to keep in stock enough to, to meet our demands. Uh, so it's like we'll, we'll order, you know, 2,000 Bibles and then they're out of stock for several months while they print more. And so just keeping our side, and those, those will go quick. Um, people want the word of God. They're hungry for it. Um, they're, they're very, very open to what does the Bible say. And so that's, uh, that's, that's something we can, also, we can also pray for that we can. I've been thinking, I'm just trying to, I don't, I don't know, I don't have the answer to this, but I've been racking my brain trying to figure out, it's like how could we you know, get around the dependency on this one company? Um, they, they own the monopoly on this good translation of the Bible. Uh, so it's, it's very hard, but they're, uh, it's just me daydreaming here, you know, but could there be a way we could, you know, tweak the formatting on this thing a little bit and, and then have our own that we won't get in trouble for printing and producing? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Something to pray about because uh, a way to distribute the word of God, that's what's going to change lives. Uh, nobody gets saved without the Bible's involvement. It's the word of God that gets to the heart of the issue. It's the word of God that can fix of sin. And it's the word of God that, can, that contains the message of salvation. So if they're going to get saved and their lives are going to get changed, it's going to be because the word of God is presented to them in a way that they can understand it, in a way that they can accept it. And so to have that in your own language, invaluable. Excellent questions. How are we doing on time, brother? Should I get, get to preaching? Okay, amen. Let's get to preaching. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Sorry. Tablet doesn't want to cooperate. There we go. Acts chapter 13. chapter 13. All right, and let me know if you're there by giving me a hearty amen. Amen, sounds like everybody. Y'all were waiting on me this time. That's okay. Acts chapter 13, we're going to do a bit of a lengthy portion of scripture reading. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of take this chapter and dissect it a little bit and then apply it to us today. Uh, so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read uh, verses 1, uh, not through the end of the chapter. We'll probably go 1 through 16. And then we'll pick up reading in verse 49. The Bible says, And now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Pergia in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Pergia, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. 
And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. And then Paul proceeds to preach a really awesome message um, about Jesus being the only way uh, for salvation. And then we come to verse 49. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came into Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. I've entitled the message this evening, The Church Has a Work to Do. The Church Has a Work to Do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you once again for the opportunity to preach your word. And God, as I asked you this morning, as I petitioned you this morning to please fill me with your spirit, empty me of self, Lord, give me wisdom to preach your word. God, I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would move upon the hearts of those who have assembled this evening. Lord, give them ears to hear and hearts ready to receive the word of, of, of the word of God. God, I pray and ask that everything done and said here tonight would be from you and that there would be uh, no hint of my fingerprints on this anywhere. God, I thank you. And in your name, we ask these things, and for your glory, amen. Amen. The church has a work to do. If I can direct your attention to the uh, first part of this chapter again, it says uh, in, uh, excuse me, hold on. Ah, yes, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. The work whereunto I have called them. Here in this chapter, we find the beginning of the first missionaries uh, sent forth. And so they list a group of men, um, all, all of which who are serving in the church of Antioch. Uh, some teachers, okay? They're, they're, there's, these, these are men who are in a position of authority, and they teach the word of God uh, to members of the church. And the Holy Ghost says, separate me Barnabas and Saul. So of, those, of that list, Barnabas and Saul were selected by the Holy Ghost. And the church, as a unit, as an assembly, laid their hands on them, and they fasted, and they prayed, and they sent them out to accomplish a work on behalf of the rest of the assembly in Antioch. All right, they, they knew that they were supposed to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. That was Christ's great commission that he gave unto the church. All right, and so this is, this is the beginning of the missionary journey, journey. Barnabas and Saul were selected for the work, and they were sent out. So we understand that what they were supposed to do was work. Um, the Bible very clearly tells us that is the work whereunto I have called them. So what is the work of the church that these two missionaries, Barnabas and Saul, were supposed to accomplish on behalf of the church in Antioch? What is the work of the church? Well, number one, the work of the church is to preach the gospel. Uh, I think that kind of goes without saying. I mean, what are we doing if we're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, if we're not showing this lost world uh, the way of salvation, what are we doing? What is our purpose outside of that? I say, if we're not preaching the word of God, we're nothing more than a social club. We might as well take the name church off the building and say we're the club of whatever. You know, you can come and be a part, and we have a membership, and we have a role, and we have activities, but there's no real meat to what it is we're doing. There's no real value to what it is we're doing because it lacks the gospel of Jesus Christ. It lacks the potency of salvation. We must preach the gospel. I would say that is the work of the church. I would say the work of the church is not just to preach the gospel and to win the lost. I would say the work of the church is also to disciple those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is where we can come to hear the word of God expounded. Uh, this is where we can come to hear the word of God taught, uh, laid out in a way that is simple to understand. And we can grow as individuals and as Christians and as a church. We can grow spiritually through studying of the word of God. And the church is a place where we can come on a weekly basis uh, and sometimes more than just a weekly basis to hear the word of God taught and preached and hear the exhortation of the word of God and grow as believers. I would say that discipleship, 
instruction. I would say that that is the work of the church. I would say that reproduction is the work of the church. What do I mean by that? I mean the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. All right, uh, the Bible very clearly spells that out for us. So we are to be witnesses in this lost world. We are to tell people on an individual basis. My job is to go and tell somebody how they can be saved because I know how to be saved because somebody told me. And so that's my job as an individual, as an individual member of the local church. That is my job as an individual. But wait, just as the fruit of a Christian is another Christian, I submit to you that the fruit of a church, this assembly, this group of individuals, is another church. We better be busy about self-replication. As I stated in the message this morning, churches have a lifespan. Oh, if we fail to reproduce ourselves, when this church goes... What's going to be left in our place if we don't get serious about this idea of church planting? If we don't get serious about this idea of getting other churches started? Like, they're not competition if you start another church in the next city over. That's help. That's not competition. (laughs) That's help. That's much needed help. That's another group of individuals reaching people. And we need more of that, not less. Oh, yes, personal soul winning is the work of the church. I always say church planting is the work of the church. So now that we've established what the work is, let's establish what a church is. And I've kind of already alluded to this. But the church is a called-out assembly of believers. And what we have as a called-out assembly in common is Jesus Christ. We're all saved by the blood of the crucified one. And that is what makes up God's church, an assembled Congregation of believers who have Christ in common. Amen. Now, the church is an assembly, but an assembly is comprised of individuals. And so just as this assembly is the church today, you as an individual are the church today. Uh, you, God hasn't forgotten about you. And when, when that day of the rapture comes and Christ takes his, uh, his, his, his church out of here, no one's getting left behind because he's accounted for every single individual. Amen. Amen. So every individual is just as much a part of the church as the assembly is. All right. And so with that in mind, we've established what the work is. We've established who and what the church is. Now, what will the work cost us? What will it cost us? So why does it have to cost us anything? Well, because any time you try to build anything or any time you set out to accomplish a work, it will cost us something. It will cost you time. It will cost you money. It'll cost you effort. In order to accomplish a work, it will cost us something. So what is it going to cost us? Well, it'll cost us our comfort. It always, number one, involves preaching the word of God. And I've already said that a little bit. But this is where it costs us some comfort because sometimes preaching the word of God is uncomfortable. Uh, it requires you to step out of your comfort zone and put yourself out there and, and expose yourself to ridicule and, in some cases, persecution. And in some countries, that may even be life-threatening or physically harmful. It will cost us something, but it will always involve preaching the Word of God. The work requires a preacher. The work of the church requires a preacher. That's why this church has a pastor. I'm so glad you guys got a good pastor. You've got a great pastor who's got a mind for souls and a vision for this place. And I am, I am pleased to know him. This is one, this is, you guys got a great, great pastor. All right. The work requires the preacher. Hey, guess what? The work requires individuals. It requires workers. And guess what? We, I can't find anywhere in scripture where the command to preach is restricted only to the pastor. As a missionary, I try and make it my goal to preach more at doorsteps than I do behind the pulpit. What do you mean by that? I mean, I'm, I'm taking the gospel to anybody who will listen. 
Um, I try to sow as I go, so to speak, wherever I am. If there's an opportunity to go out with a group and knock some doors and tell people, hey, I would like to show you how you can know 100% sure you're on your way to heaven. Somebody showed me this and it changed my life. Changed my life for the better. What are you doing if you're sharing the gospel? You're preaching. Because preaching is declaring the truths of the word of God. If you declare the gospel to anybody, guess what? You just preached. And if you're giving a salvation message, that's the first message every preacher, pardon the term, ought to know. How to lead another soul to Christ. But if you declare the truth of the Bible, you just preached. Okay? Amen. Is everybody awake tonight? <laughs> Amen. All right. I, y'all look tired. I know it's been a long day. All right. I will hurry up. I won't be long-winded. I promise. Okay. You listen quick. I'll preach quick. Deal? All right. Here we go. So it will always require a preacher. Preaching is essential to the work of Christ. In fact, it is the fundamental epicenter of the work. Without the preaching of the gospel, this work fizzles out and it becomes nothing more than a social club. It will always involve preaching the word. Here's something it might cost us. Number two, understand it will always be opposed by false prophets. Anytime you get it in your mind to build something for the Lord or to do a work for God, you think the devil is just going to sit back and be like, well, all right. Oh, no, he's, he's ready to oppose you. Yeah, he's ready to stand in your way. Uh, I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me, but we got revival on a doorstep. I mean, I get to lead someone to Christ, and, I mean, they might be crying. He might be hugging. He might be telling me about how he's going to come to church and how he prayed just a few moments ago that God would show him something, and here I am knocking on the door. And, I mean, it's wonderful. And for all of their promises and whatnot, Every single Sunday, there's some new excuse why they can't be there. What is that? That's the devil's opposition. That's the devil throwing every occasion, every stumbling block, everything in his arsenal to keep that new Christian, that baby convert, from getting into a place where he's going to grow and become stronger. Oh, Satan may have lost his soul that day, but he's going to make sure that that soul doesn't self-replicate. If he can, he will. It will always be opposed, opposed, I keep trying to say that, opposed, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Opposed by false prophets. Look at verse number 8 in our text. It says, Elemas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. And boy, I love this story. This is an amazing account. I mean, I, I really hope heaven has replays so that I can, uh, I can go and watch this in real time. You know, because here you've got Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, and they do what they usually do when they come to a new city. They go find a synagogue because that's where people are going to be gathered that's where there's going to be uh, a religious epicenter of some sort and they'll be they'll be talking about the word of god so he goes to the synagogue and he waits his turn and uh, you know people recognize him i'm sure he had the air of a pharisee because he was one and he studied at the feet of gamaliel he had this persona about him and they come up to him just like they do in this later chapter and say hey, you have any uh, additional word of exhortation for the people say on and that's paul's opportunity he's like all right my turn to tell you about jesus and he lets him have it and he goes in there and anyway his ministry like it always does seems to be causing a stir wherever he is i mean he's causing a ruckus he's causing people are talking and word of this gets back to the governor of this uh area uh what was it paphos oh excuse me hold on let me let's go back and read it uh yeah gone through the island of paphos they found a certain sorcerer, false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man. Oh, verse 7, by the way, if you're following away. Uh, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Man, a lot. Can you imagine what an opportunity that would be? I mean, I've thought about this a lot. You know, imagine what I would do if, you know, the president or a governor of a state that I was visiting uh, called me up and said, hey, I heard you've been preaching uh, and uh, it's causing quite a stir in my, my state. How about you come and tell me what you're saying? I would like to hear what's causing such a ruckus. Oh, boy, what? Man, alive. Could you just imagine what kind of opportunity that would be? And that's exactly what happened to these guys. I mean, Barnabas and Saul, they get invited to come and speak to a Roman governor. You don't get to go talk to the Roman governor just because. Okay, he, he answers directly to Caesar. Okay, he's pretty high up the political chain. 
uh, for the for the empire at the time. And so that's what that's what's going on. That's what they have. And then Sergius Paulus, the Bible Bible says that he's a prudent man. Okay, uh, he's 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 a critical thinker. He's got he's got a good head on his shoulders. But he's got this advisor, this counselor, Bar Jesus or Elymas. All right, two names given in the Bible for the same guy. And the Bible says that he's a sorcerer. Okay, now. I, I, I've read this chapter several times. I don't believe this means he mastered arcane arts. Okay, I think this term sorcerer is applied to a subverter, uh, a bewitcher of sorts, a distractor. Okay, uh, that's 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 the idea you're getting here. Okay, he's uh, he's not a soothsayer. He's not demon possessed. Uh, he's a expert distractor and a subverter. All right, and that's exactly what he says. He tried to subvert him from the faith. All right. So, read the account. Elemas the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn away, as to subvert, to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And this is just kind of the picture I get here, okay? I can't help but do this because this is just so awesome. You get the idea, and I, I get the feeling because Saul, at this point, is the one who set his eyes on Elemas the sorcerer. Okay, he's the one who set his eyes on him. So I get the feeling that the guy talking to Sergius Paulus must be Barnabas. As Paul's not the one talking, Paul would be completely engaged with Sergius Paulus if that was the case. So Barnabas must be the one talking, and you know Paul's over there praying or whatnot and kind of watching around. And you know you can kind of get this like Weasley guy, Elemus. You know he's up there, he's putting his hand on Sergius Paulus' shoulder, and he's just kind of whispering in his ear. You know, it's like, hey, uh, what are you doing? You know, what, are, what are you doing having these guys in? Are they causing a stir in the city? Really, you ought to just, like, kick them out. You know, I mean, th- think, think about it, Sergius Paulus. I mean, it's an election year. Uh, you're, you're letting these guys have your ear or whatnot. I mean, think about what this is going to do to your political career. Think about what this is going to do if, it gets, if word gets back to Caesar. Uh, think, think about your own neck, Sergius Paulus. Do you, they crucified Jesus for preaching something similar. Do you really want to hear these guys out? You know, and, and all the while, while this is going on, you can just kind of see Paul. Sets his eyes on him. You know, and he doesn't like what he's seeing. Uh, he doesn't like this guy, Elemis. He doesn't like what Elemis is about. Uh, he doesn't like anybody who's going to get away in the Holy Spirit working. And the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And look at what he says. And said, verse 10, Oh, full of all subtlety, and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Now, I do not recommend anybody try this today. Okay, we understand that Acts is a transitional book, all right? None of us are apostles. But the point is, the application of that story and what just happened is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the same God that answered in this miraculous way is the same God that stands with us when the devil comes to oppose the work. So take heart, Christian. Understand that, yes, Satan is going to send his false prophets to oppose the work. He is going to try everything in his arsenal to keep you from making or following through with a decision that could be life-changing for you or for someone else. He is absolutely going to do that. But being aware of the coming blow is the best way to be able to defend against it. I said this one time. I said, if somebody came up to me and informed me very bluntly, I don't like what you said, and I'm going to break your teeth. I'd say, okay. And I wouldn't tell him. I'd just hit him. I'd break his teeth before he'd have the chance. As if you're going to tell me that, then I'm not going to wait for you to follow through. I'm going to lay you out. Amen. All right? The point, the point is, you, the blow you see coming is the one that's easy to defend against. So mark it down. Don't let the devil catch you off guard. Don't let him hit you with a surprise attack or a blindside punch. Get your fists up and get ready for a fight because if you decide to get involved in the work, if you decide to do something for God, then the devil is going to oppose you. So get ready for a fight. Amen. Get ready for a fight.
It will always be opposed by false prophets. Hey, number three, here's something it might cost us. Some will turn back from the work. That's okay. The work must continue. You know, I think about this. I think about John Mark was there. You know, it says they had John to their minister. John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And this was the source, as you taught about earlier, of some contention for them for the second missionary journey. This is where it happened. Immediately after this great victory against Elymas the sorcerer, that was done through the instrument by Paul's hand. Paul was the instrument that the Holy Spirit worked through. That was done through that. John saw this happen. John witnessed the victory. And I don't exactly know what happened to him, but somewhere along the line between here and between the next city, he got discouraged. Maybe he didn't get discouraged. Maybe he got word that somebody at home he cared about got sick. We don't really know the reasons he left, but for whatever reason, he turned his back on the work. He left Barnabas and Saul or Paul and Barnabas where they were, and he went back to Jerusalem. Why was he there? He was there for their minister. Now, before we're all too hard on John Mark, he was handpicked to go with Barnabas and Paul. You don't get to go with Barnabas and Saul for being a knucklehead teenager or a knucklehead youth. You are cut from a different cloth if you are handpicked to go with these guys. Okay? So now that that's established, it means anybody can get discouraged. Anybody could quit. Anybody could leave. And regardless of the reasons, it doesn't give us an excuse to quit. Could you imagine how this story would play out if, you know, Barnabas and Saul just kind of took counsel with each other and said, man, John Mark left. You know, he was here to our minister. We don't have anybody to, to be our minister anymore. I guess we should just go home too. I'm so glad that's not how the scriptures read. They didn't let somebody abandoning the work, abandoning them, they did not let that, let that deter them from the work they pressed on. They kept going. And people will leave, people, people will hurt you in the ministry. People you pour energy and time and effort into. Maybe you personally led them to Christ and brought them to church and, and, and organized the pastor getting them baptized in the baptistry and personally took an interest in discipling them. And, and somewhere along the line, you know, they must have been like that seed that was cast into the rocky soil. It had no root in itself. And when persecution came or times got tough, man, they just withered away. They fell out of church. Maybe it was nothing like that at all, but they just got discouraged and just couldn't keep it up. But too much, too fast. I don't know. I don't know the reasons why some people get discouraged and leave church. But I know this. Some people look for that as an opportunity why they can get out of church. Some people look for that as an opportunity why they can quit, why they can have a sour attitude. And we justify our own sin because somebody else let us down. God help us. Let that not be true of anybody here today. Someone gets discouraged and turns back and turns away from the work. Press on, Christian. Press on. Don't let, don't let somebody else's actions dictate your future. Keep your eyes on Christ and not your fellow man. Number four. It will involve publishing the word of God. Now, I, I, I say this all the time. There is no reason this should not be done in every single church in America, in the world. We have more tools at our disposal now than ever before for publishing the Word of God. We've got social media. We've got live stream. We've got tracks and printing company. We can mass produce scripture plant pamphlets. This church on Wednesday, we were doing, was it scripture collating? Is that what you, that's what you call it? We're putting, put, putting John Aromas together and doing it in a, man, this is the most effective John and Romans uh, uh, constructing uh, church I've ever seen. I'll tell you, the, the stapling parties I've been a part of, whatnot, they're slow, they're tedious, they're long. You guys got the hookup. I'm telling you, you guys cranked out some stuff that would take most churches a week to do. You did it in a day. I'm telling you, this is, this is exciting. That was a privilege to be a part of. And can I just exhort you for a minute? Good work, keep it up. Don't stop that. Stay faithful to that ministry. It makes a difference. You're getting the word of God into places that are hard to get the word of God. It's hard for people to get their hands on the word of God, and you're getting it to them. 
Don't stop that good work. Keep it up. Amen. Good job, church, for that. Absolutely. But there's no reason we shouldn't be able to publish the Word of God today. Uh, we have so many tools at our disposal. Uh, between New Testaments, church tracks, flyers, websites, live stream, you name it. We, we have got the hookup to see that this gets done. And it is, it is not difficult. I mean, every single one of us shops. Uh, we go grocery shopping. I, I, I'm, I'm on the road a lot. I go to fast food restaurants. I don't know if it shows or not. I hope not. But praise the Lord. We go there because that's what you get to eat for cheap on the road. And it's so easy to just stay. Here's an invitation to the church I go to, and I know we're far away. You'll probably never be out here, but there's some important information on there. There's a Bible study on the back of this flyer that can tell you how you can know you have eternal life. If you give that a read, you can have some answers. You can have some questions answered. Well, that did not take me very long to say. And that is a thought-provoking statement. Most people, rather than here, here's an invitation to church and drive off with your food or whatnot. You take an extra second or two and just tell them that on this paper is scripture that can tell you how you can know you have a home in heaven 100% for all of eternity. And most people will go, wow, thank you. I'm going to give that a read. Nine times out of ten, that's the response I get. I'm saying anybody can do that. You don't, you don't have to be an educated individual. You don't have to be soul winner extraordinaire to be able to hand out a gospel tract. Now, don't stop there. Learn how to be soul winner extraordinaire if you can. You know, <laughs> submit to uh, uh, the instruction there. Uh, back, back to the first message this morning. But anybody, anybody can do that. Boys, sit up. You know better. Thank you. Finally, and we'll be done. Number five, it involves persecution from devout and honorable men. This is what it will cost us. It will cost us persecution. If you set out to do a work for the Lord, and persecution comes in many different ways. It does, but mark it down. Just like the devil is not going to let you do something without opposing you via false prophets, he's also going to oppose us during, uh, through persecution. But understand... That might sound repetitive, but one comes from the world and this one comes from within. Notice how it says persecution from devout and honorable men, not wicked heathen sinners. That's what it says. Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. Now, why did that happen? We didn't read it for time's sake. But if you read that message of Paul's through the rest of the chapter, this is what ended up happening. Paul preaches a message, and everybody in that synagogue gets excited about it. I mean, they receive the word of God with gladness and readiness, and they're excited. They invite them to come back next Sabbath. They say, hey, hey, you guys need to come back and, and, and do that again. Uh, preach that again. That's what the Jews are saying to them. I mean, they, these, they're, they're Christians. Uh, they, are, they are believers in what Paul and Barnabas said because they want them to come back. They want them to come back and do it again. But you know who happened to be there? There were a couple of Gentiles in the crowd that also heard and received the word. And that following Sabbath, this is what happened. There were more Gentiles in the synagogue than there were Jews because word got around. And then all of a sudden, the Jews didn't like that very much. Oh, boy, this is a problem in churches. You see, sometimes we get so used to people and, and there's, there's this thing called growing pains. Uh, when the word of God gets published and this work gets going and people start coming in from outside the church and they sit in there and you know what? Uh, they look like you did, you know, 20 years ago uh, when you were rough and didn't know up from down and, you know, you had, you had all your problems and your sin baggage and whatnot and you didn't know to dress up for church and you didn't know there was a certain way we're supposed to go and you didn't know any of the hymns in the hymn book and you didn't know, you had no idea uh, what, what, where, what order Genesis to Revelation was in. I mean, you had no clue. You know, sometimes those people, you know, they don't smell the greatest. Sometimes they come to church smelling like smoke. Sometimes they have the scent of liquor on their breath. Sometimes they're dirty because they're homeless and they haven't showered in a while. If we're not careful, we can be like some of these Jews. That they're, they're soiling the pews. What do they think they're doing here? And we can get into see. And by the way, the Bible calls them devout and honorable women and chief men. 
These are not bad people. It's important for us to realize that sometimes good people do stupid, foolish things. We realize that? Let's endeavor not to be one of them. Let's endeavor not to be that way. Sometimes the persecution that hurts the most is from those we serve next to. Pastor's not here tonight, but I'm sure he would be nodding with me right now if I were to say that sometimes the biggest problems in the church are interchurch or interpersonal church relationships. It doesn't come from outside the church. Sometimes there's disputes on the inside. You know what would fix all of that? If we would take heed to what Paul said about charity. Charity suffereth long and is kind. We just have the same kind of love that Christ had for everybody and recognize that people are going to wrong me and I've wronged other people and nine times out of ten we're not even aware of the fact that we did it. So hey, is there anything wrong, church family, with taking one in the gut every once in a while for Jesus and not saying anything and letting it roll off your back like water off a duck? Is there anything wrong with that? Or do, where do we get this idea that, you know, <laughs> we have got to make sure that this is resolved? whatever the problem is. So-and-so wronged me, and there's going to be a reckoning. Pretty sure the Bible says something about vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. In other words, don't worry about it. Look, it doesn't matter if they're in the most deepest, most wicked sin in the world, and they're sitting in the pew next to you. Look, God is going to set them straight one day. It is not our job. That's not... So don't worry about what other people are doing. Worry about you. You've got enough problems in your own life than to be worrying about everybody else's. You wear yourself out worrying about everybody else's sin, everybody else's issues. You've got enough to worry about with just you. I know that to be true because that's my story. I can't worry about everybody else's problems. I've got enough issues to deal with. Just my own flesh. We can't let the devout and honorable people and the chief men discourage us. <laughs> it's going to happen. Someone's going to wrong you. Forgive. Forgive even if they don't ask for forgiveness. Move on. The work must continue. We can't let that keep us from accomplishing the work that the church has to do. How about it, church? You ready to get to work? By the way, when you get busy in the work, we understand what it's going to cost us. We understand who the work is applicable to. We get busy in the work. This is the result. Verse 52 says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. I tell you, there is nothing like being right in the center of the will of God, right in the midst of the work, getting ready to roll your sleeves up and do something for God. I'm telling you, there's nothing better than that. There is peace and joy in serving Jesus. Now, it's, as plainly as the sermon illustrates, it is not without its problems. But God gives you grace to get through those problems, and he's right there with you the whole way. And I would rather face all of the forces of hell with Christ next to me than to face the problems of the world alone. I would. With God before us, who can stand against us? And we are on the winning side. The disciples are filled with joy. And when we're filled with joy and we're in the midst of the work, you're also filled with the Holy Ghost. And that is when things get interesting. That is when... The blindness fell upon the sorcerer. That is when revival breaks out, when Christians get full of the Holy Ghost once, once again. You see, God's, you've got all the Holy Ghost you're going to get. When you got saved, you got all of him. The question is whether or not God has all of us, whether or not we are completely surrendered to him. And if he's got all of us, that is being filled with the Holy Spirit. When God has every part of you, that's being filled with the Holy Ghost, and that's 
that is when revival happens. And that is when we're going to see church pews full. That is when we're going to see other churches get started and get planted. That is when the work gets exciting. That it won't happen unless we get busy. Unless we surrender. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you once again for another opportunity to preach your word. Lord, to exhort these believers and to challenge people. God, to encourage people. And tell them that what they are doing is wonderful and to get them, get them to not stop, Lord. And them to keep going. Stay encouraged. And Lord, to also challenge people to maybe take it a step further. Oh, not to be satisfied with the status quo, dear Lord, but uh, to try new things, to try and improve ourselves and to try with every breath that we have in the short lifespan you give us, Lord, to do more, to constantly grow. I heard a preacher say once, if you're a better Christian yesterday than you are today, that means you're backslidden. So, Lord, we always need to be striving to do more, to be better. God, I pray and ask that we would apply these truths to our lives and recognize what the work is, what it will cost us, but to know that you're with us every step of the way. And if we'll get busy, if we'll get busy with the work, the work of the church, winning souls, discipling people, planting churches, oh God, there's joy in serving Jesus and there's Holy Spirit filling. Things could turn upside down here in Custer and South Dakota. Your 12 disciples turned the known world upside down, Lord, because they were just 12 men who were filled with the Holy Ghost and preached the gospel. Oh, what could happen with a group of 30, 40, 100? All had the same mindset. We could change a nation. We could change the world. Thank you, Heavenly Father.